This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Well, I don't want to start early, um, because in the last... How many of you are here for the last session? A few? Oh, okay. All right. Thank you for coming back. Um... You know, I, I sat down and I calculated. We got 22 different seminars running six sessions each. And so everybody can go to one session of one seminar uh, or, or one session of approximately one-fourth of the seminars, which is, what's up with that? Thank you. Thank, thank, thank God for Audioverse. But anyway, last time, I, I usually give this seminar in a weekend. And I'm talking for five hours in a weekend, you know, in three sessions, and I'm used to having, really packing it in. And so I really flew through the last seminar and found out that I had 20 minutes to kill. So I'm not going to start early, because uh, I don't want to do that again. I'm going to try and pace myself. But I'm interested in who came the farthest. Who came from outside the U.S.? All right. I see you're shy, but you still raise your hand anyway. Where'd you come from? Oh, man, I'm deaf. Say again. Angola. Angola. Oh, welcome. How do you like it? You did, it's good? This is a spiritual feast. Did anyone, did anyone else come from outside the U.S.? Yeah, okay, come on, raise that hand. Where'd you come from? Yeah. I'm, from where? Iceland. Welcome. Oh, this... Um, Wish you were here for the first session, but this is, you have seen your country changing. Uh, the climate and everything else and more farmland. You get more farmland now than you had 50 years ago. Right or, right or wrong? Eh, a little more. And your, 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 uh, your, um, oh, all I can come up with icebergs, but that's not it. Your glaciers, your glaciers are going away. Yeah, Iceland. Wow. Okay. Um, well, actually, Iceland isn't, well, Iceland isn't that far from Maine, but I think Angola, you still got him beat. I think you came from the farthest away. So, welcome to all of you. I got another question. When I left home yesterday to try and get here, and oh my goodness, was that an adventure, trying flying on New Year's Day. Oh, wow. Barely got here. Um, when I left here yesterday at home, it was, uh, I believe it was 14 degrees below zero in Maine in Maine. Who, who was colder? Really? I win? Oh, I was giving away 10 bucks. I get to keep it. No, I'm kidding. Um, okay. Who, who came from the hottest place? Where'd you, where? Palm Springs. No one's going to beat you. You, uh, except maybe, maybe those people out in Brawley. Uh, uh, people know where Palm Springs is. They don't know where Brawley is, but it's like, 20 miles from you, and it's horrible, right? Wow. Okay, well, welcome. Um, let me just check on the time. Well, some other people may come, may trickle in, but let's go ahead and start, and let's start with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord for this spiritual feast. I thank you, Lord, for surrounding me with young people 
that are on fire, that have energy, that have vision. Lord, I ask that you would work through this small, little, modest seminar to, to feed those who you want to hear these words. Lord, I ask that you would anoint my lips that I may speak what you want me to speak. And I ask that you would have your spirit descend upon this room, that you may be present and that your work may be done. Lord, thank you so much. I pray for the other speakers that these blessings will be extended to them and those who are listening, that your name may be lifted up and that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. My name's Scott Christensen. I'm uh, from Maine, you know that much. Uh, and for those of you who were at the last session, those few of you, I, I, I apologize. I'm going to go through some little introduction that I went through last time. Um, I, when I was young, I, 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 when I was a boy, I lived in Loma Linda. And going to Loma Linda Elementary, <clears throat> somewhere along the line, I picked up this idea that sin affects the world, the actual physical world, and that the earth is suffering because of sin. Now, that could have come from Romans 8.22. That could have come from <clears throat> elsewhere in Ellen White's writings. That could have come from Isaiah. Uh, the earth will grow old like a garment. Um, I don't know where it came from. Could have come from a teacher who was giving me this information without a specific uh, text attached to it, or as a result of all of the texts put together that touch on this. And yet I had this idea that sin affected the world. This seed was planted. And I, it's not like I thought about it every day, but it's like, how could that happen? Because Loma Linda is ringed by these massive mountains, Mount San Gregorio, 11,000 feet. Um, and the all sorts of palm trees, a great place to spend Christmas, I'll tell you that much. Better than Maine. <laughs> but, um, and I grew up, large orange groves, they're all houses now, but large orange groves that I used to play in, fields, agricultural fields that, that I used to run around in, all of this nature, birds and bees and spiders and gophers and snakes and coyotes and all of that, and it was all right there. And we used to go down to the ocean. And at the ocean, I could stand there and I could see all the way out to Catalina Island, 20 miles. So I knew the ocean was huge. I had no idea how big the ocean really was at that point in time. But how could sin affect the mountains? How could sin affect the orange groves? How could sin affect the ocean? This thought stayed way in the back of my mind until I grew up and escaped the gravitational pull of Loma Linda and achieved escape velocity. And we went to La Vida Mission in New Mexico, a Navajo, self-supporting ministry to the Navajo. Fantastic little place. And I was there for two years. And I got to know some of the old Navajo. It's very difficult with the language barrier talking to some of the older Navajo. But, but I would try, and they would try, and we'd sometimes get a younger Navajo who would help. And I talked to them about a number of things. And in some conversation somewhere, this idea came up. I asked them about the changing world because they mentioned it, and I, I kind of pursued that topic. And the old Navajo told me, yes, the world is changing. The peach trees that were the prized possession of our grandparents that they planted, the peach trees died when we were kids, and we tried replanting them. The peach trees that grew for our grandparents don't grow for us. Not only that, but the gardens that we planted when we were kids every year, 
with our parents and the, and the gardens that we tried to keep planting as we grew up, those have died. The, even if we use water, even if we go 20 miles and get a barrel of water and water, our, the gardens don't grow anymore. The Navajo Nation is turning into badlands. The world is changing. And I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, it means the end of the world. This is one of the key signs in Navajo understanding that the world is ending. Well, that's not a, their perspective is not a Christian perspective. It's a Navajo traditional perspective. And so I talked to some of the younger Navajo, and I said, this idea, this, the, the old people say the world's changing, and they said, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. The world is changing, and they've seen it. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our parents, it's true. And I said, well, this idea that, that it means it's the end of the world. And, they, and these young Navajo that I was talking to, they were Adventist. And they said, it's true. We are seeing signs of the end, signs that Jesus will return. That's our understanding. And when we read the Bible, we see that. And when we read Ellen White, we see that. Because that's the reality for Navajo Seventh-day Adventists and the world we're living in. Well, this idea that the world was changing through sin, and there was a spiritual connection and an end-time connection, that's the first time I put it all together. And I pondered it. That's an interesting thing happening on the Navajo Nation. Maybe, maybe the Lord is making it so that they, everyone can see, and, and you know, maybe that's a Navajo thing. Well, I went from there, I hopped a skip in a very big jump, and we landed in Mongolia, where uh, we were the first, we were not the first Adventists in Mongolia, that was Brad and Kathy Jolly working for Adventist Frontier Missions. We were the first to be church missionaries, and we were starting the ADRA work in 1994. And Mongolia, one of the things that I saw there was that the country was changing, that the Gobi Desert was marching north. It was expanding. It was marching north by 15 to 20 kilometers a year. And, you know, Mongolia, they're nomads. They're, they're, they, they live 20 miles apart. They're little round felt uh, tents called gears. They live 20 miles apart, and so it's like, so the desert's marching north, so what? You know, I mean, there's a lot of room out there, but that's actually not the case. The reason the Mongolians live 20 miles apart is because they live off of their animals. They drink the milk, they eat the meat, they milk the, make the milk into cheese to store it. Uh, they ferment the milk into something called areg and, and get terribly drunk. Um, they even milk the camels. I've been in the Gobi Desert and had camel milk on Cheerios, and I cannot recommend it. Don't go with the camel milk. But they, they use the hair uh, to make their clothing, to make their ropes, horsehair ropes, or horse, horsetail ropes. Fascinating. Um, they use the dung for their fuel. And in Mongolia, in the countryside, they'll see minus 40, minus 45, minus 50 every year. We're talking about an extraordinarily cold nation, okay? So keep that in mind. They, they need that dung. And the reason they live 20 miles apart is because the grass is so scarce, and these animals, you know, have to move around to, to, to graze, and so they've got this large grazing area. Well, what happens when the, when the Gobi Desert moves north is that people are displaced. Families that have been going to the same place for centuries, literally, they can't go there anymore because there's no grass, and they have to move. And all of a sudden, families are 10 miles apart. 
Well, that's when somebody's gear, a felt tent, gets doused with gasoline and lit on fire at midnight. That's when knives come out and there's knife fights. That's when a jeep is driven at high speed through the gear in the middle of the night and everyone killed. I mean, they're pretty vicious, frankly, sometimes. This is where Genghis Khan came from, so, you know. But, um, but we, you saw violence and you saw people being uprooted. People that had to go from the countryside to the city, people who were once self-sufficient and went into a place where they didn't know what to do or how to do it and fell into crime and prostitution and most of the time fell into a really terrible, horrible life. And so I'm looking at this and going, huh, the world's changing and there's a societal impact and there's a spiritual component. That's interesting. While I was in Mongolia, we started getting snowstorms. Now, in Maine, you know, we get six, ten inches, we just drive through it, no big deal, hope the plow comes sometime, and uh, boy, they better not cancel school for just eight inches, that'd be wrong, but, you know, we think we're tough, and, and uh, we look at, and Mainers look at Mongolia and go, so they got a snowstorm, so what? Except here's the thing, snowstorms in Mongolia traditionally, and they have a very long written record, traditionally those snowstorms come once every ten years. And it's devastating. Millions of animals die. Because when the snow covers, I mean, they get cold, but they don't get storms. When the snow covers the land, the animals have to paw through the snow to try and find a tuft of grass here and a tuft of grass there. I mean, it's, it's, it's sparse to begin with. And this is dry grass. It's got very few nutrients in it. When that snow covers the land, it becomes a negative caloric event. The animal spends more energy moving the snow than they get from the uh, uh, little bit of grass they find. They starve, they die, they don't produce the milk, they don't produce the manure. The, the, the foundation upon which people's lives are built um, crumbles. Well, the snowstorms started coming once, twice, three, four, five times a year. Absolutely unprecedented in the history of Mongolia. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, no accurate number is known, less than a million. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people moved to the capital city. And these are people who had only their animals. They were rich a few years before. When they got to the city, they had maybe their clothing. And that's it, no accumulated wealth. Mo many of them had burnt their little bit of furniture trying to stay warm. Because when you don't have anything else, and it's 45 below, and the kids are freezing, and there's no trees for 100 miles. When they got to the city, the prostitution rates absolutely skyrocketed. Children were sold. Crime skyrocketed. Horrible, horrible, horrible things. Satan reigned. It was horrible. And continues to be so in, in some senses. Uh, it's not done yet. And so we saw this changing world we saw the impact on society, we saw conflict, we saw hunger, we saw increased disease. And I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at Matthew 24, and I'm saying, wow, that sounds, I mean, those two things sound alike. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, it's happening in the Navajo Nation, it's happening in Mongolia, what else is going on? I left Mongolia after five years, I went to China, and that was a huge eye-opener for me. I went from 3.1 billion, 1 million people to 1.3 billion people in China as the ADRA director. And um, 
China is under extraordinary resource pressure. There are more than 600 cities of more than 1 million people in each city that don't have nearly enough water, that are in water crises is the accurate term. I mean, water is being rationed to more than 600 million people in China right now. They are doing everything they possibly can to, to increase food production. And they are even moving villages onto depleted soil so that they can farm the land under the village. They have cut down entire forests and they have uh, um, put crops in. And in one of these places where they cut down the entire forest about 15 years earlier, they called me in when I was the director of Adger and they said, Scott, we want you to talk to this cooperative of farmers. They, 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 they're farmers in this large region. There's hundreds and thousands and thousands of farmers. We want you to help them. That's what the central government told me. So reluctantly, I went out to talk to the farmers and the farmers said, well, you know, um, 15 years ago, uh, they cut down all the trees and, and we started farming this area and we put in wells 30 meters deep, 90 feet, almost 100 feet, and we pumped water and we irrigated and we put on a whole bunch of fertilizer and wow, did we produce food. But after a few years, the, the, the well went dry and so we dug it deeper and we put in larger pumps and oh, it worked so well. And we put on more fertilizer and we did all that stuff. And, and after a few more years, you know, uh, we had to put in new wells. Well, long story short, the wells were over 600 meters deep, 1,900 feet, and they needed pumps the size of locomotive engines. And they said, can you, can you help us with this? I said, no, can't. that's not what Adra does. I said, what are you going to do? I mean, you can only chase the water down so far. What are you going to do when, uh, when it's all gone? And it looks like it's all gone now. And they said, we'll just move to the city and get a factory job. You know, everything's in the city. China, uh, I, I could spend the whole seminar talking about China and their resource pressures. I won't. But the closest metaphor I can get to is a country with such demand and with such needs, and the government leaders are trying so hard to make sure that people stay happy. The Romans knew how to do that, bread and circuses. But trying to keep political peace that they're putting tremendous pressure on food production and on the production of every other material. It's kind of like a country that is milking a cow 24 hours a day, knowing that that cow will die, but getting every drop of milk that they can. Well, I looked at all of this and I started, I said to myself, you know, it can't be that the climate change I'm seeing in China, and yes, I was seeing quite a bit there, and the resource pressures I'm seeing, and the stuff I'm seeing in Mongolia, and the societal impacts, if this really is as big a deal as it looks like, how can this be happening and it's not mentioned in the Bible? How can this be happening and it's not mentioned in Spirit of Prophecy? If the world's actually changing and it's from sin, it's got to be mentioned. And so I began a study. And lo and behold, it's mentioned abundantly in both scripture and spirit of prophecy, some of which we'll be looking at, and I, which I look at uh, at great length in my book, which I'm supposed to push, they tell me, and it's downstairs in the ballroom. And by the way, I don't make any money from my book. Uh, any author's royalties are go into my ch home church building fund, so no financial interest in that. But anyway, if you want a further study, my book is available, Planted in Distress. Um, but I began a study, and it culminated in writing the book, and 
what is basically going on is that we are seeing prophecy fulfilled right before our eyes. We're seeing the effect of sin on the earth right before our eyes, and we're asleep. If only we would wake up, we would have a tremendous sense of urgency based on the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24, a sense of urgency that this church does not have now. I feel a lot more comfortable saying that in front of an average church than I do a GYC audience because you guys are the hope of the future and you're here because you're dedicated. So don't take that as criticism. Um, but still, we're largely asleep. So we're going to be talking about the, the impact of sin on the physical world. Session one went deeply into that. We're, we're past session one. This is session two. We're going to be talking about instability of the physical world causing instability in our society. We like to think that here we are in these buildings and planes and cars and, you know, cell phones and all that stuff, and nature is out there. But that's not the case. Nature's right under our feet. Our society, our industry, our economy are all built on the systems that God created to sustain life on this planet. As they erode, so do our economy, our society, and we fall quickly into conflict, we fall into disease, we fall into famine, and it's happening right now, as we speak. You don't see it yet, but it's happening, and we'll go into why you don't see it yet. So we get into disease and pestilence and famine, and there's this direct line from sin in the context of the great controversy to what's going on right now. There isn't anything that happens in the world that doesn't happen in the context of the great controversy. So, anchor text is Matthew 24, 6 through 8, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Um, it's very unlikely that you'll attend, you know, uh, all or even many of my seminars because there's, there's just a buffet of things here. But if you are impressed to, uh, listen to these seminars on Audioverse. In a, in a later seminar, I will be unpacking this verse and the parallel chapters in uh, Mark and Luke. And I doubt you've heard before what I have to say. So during creation week, and I covered creation week extensively in seminar one, God created systems. He created uh, physics and his natural laws. And then he created on, the, on planet Earth our atmospheric system, our oceans and thermal distribution, our climate system, freshwater production and storage, food production. He also in, uh, created human civilization and health. Uh, if you read Genesis chapter 1, you'll find it there, what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to eat. But these five systems here in our day, in our time, and we can chart and graph them, are each in uh, steep and accelerating decline. The, the evidence is concrete. I realize it's, it's a, some of this, especially the climate, is, is political. But when you look at this through a scriptural lens, and then you look at science, you look at the effect of sin. We are in steep and accelerating decline in every one of these systems. Uh, well, yeah, I was ahead of myself. So we were, we, were in com we were in perfection. God created the earth in perfection, and we went to dysfunction. 
And you can look at that through this chain of logic. Satan is in rebellion. Rebellion is sin. Sin, key point, sin is separation from God. Sin separates creation from its creator, and the consequence is death. Everything on earth that God created is subject to death because of sin, even these amazing systems that God created. So, if you take a look at this top, you know how that works. You get a smooth surface, you spin it, you start it. It's going just smooth, just great. Things are working just fine. But it doesn't stay that way forever. It eventually begins to wobble a little. And then eventually it begins to wobble more and more and more. And then it crashes and falls. The earth, if it were a top, is wobbling. Wobbling a fair amount. And you know what happens. And you know that it gets worse. And in the accelerating decline that we see, we see the lifespan of a top. That is the destabilized world in every sense of the, of the word. That's the destabilized world in which we all live and in which we must carry out our ministries and in which we must carry them out with fire and with fervor because time is so short, brothers and sisters. I want, we're, um, that's the introduction. We're going to look at one system now today, and that's our food production system in this seminar. I spend a lot of time on food production, and that's because it's the canary in the coal mine. It is the easiest. It is the most uh, scientifically validated. It is the most studied system in which we can see the effects of sin and the connection to Scripture. So bear with me as, as I line it up here. We have destroyed God's food production system. What was created during the creation week. Soil is made up of all sorts of things. It's made up of um, bits of rock. It's made up of organic matter. It's made up of trillions and trillions of microorganisms that are there uh, working in the soil, releasing nutrients. It's made up of all kinds of different fungus, some of which scavenge um, nutrients and have a symbiotic relationship with plants. They both get something out of it. The symbiotic relationships that God created in Creation Week, not many of them are left, but those that are are astonishing. Soil is living. Plants grow in it. They get what they need. They're not incredibly productive, but that's because of the result of three separate curses. The curse of Adam, you will, you will earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. God intentionally made the earth less productive because man needed to work because sin would have exploded and everything would have been over very quickly without that. Then there was a second curse, the curse of Cain. The earth will not yield her bounty. Two curses in a row that suppressed food production. Then there was the curse of Noah, where this earth, which to hear the description in Genesis, basically ran on hydroponics. A mist came up at night, you know? This earth that Ellen White says was incredibly productive, basically unrecognizable compared to what we have now. Just astonishing. That earth went away. And we've had so three successive curses, the result of which is that we really had to fight and scrape to produce food until the current age. Man, in his wisdom, and I use that ironically, man in his wisdom overcame those three curses by engaging in 
industrial food produ production. And by doing that, we destroyed God's system. A couple things you have to know. First of all, oil is food. In the developed world, we use between six and nine calories of oil to put one calorie of food on our plate. A significant part of your food cost is directly related to, to oil. There is an iron link, stainless steel if you want. There's this, there's this unbreakable link between the price of oil and the price of food. Cheap food, by the way, is, is, is a thing of the past. It's over forever. So oil is food, and insanely, food is oil. In Brazil and in the U.S., we take uh, billions of bushels of corn and turn it into fuel. So here's, here's, here's corn, which is already, what, 70% oil by energy content? And through an in inefficient process, we turn that back into oil. Some people are getting rich, but it's, it's insane. We used to sell that corn to the world. We don't know. We drive with it. Uh, this is a population chart from the year 1050, and this is 1 billion. And look at that population growth. Those of you who have a good grasp of history, what happened? 1800, 1750, 1800, 1850, what happened? Bingo. Ag absolutely. A, a, a student right there. The Industrial Revolution started out with uh, mills that were located by a river and were driven by the, a water wheel, but that went away quickly. That gave way to coal and that gave way to oil and natural gas. And because of our ability to transport uh, food and store food and uh, process food, we were able to see a significant population growth. The population is directly related to the availability and cost of food. Lots of food that's cheap, lots of whatever's eating it. Then we went to 1950, 1960, we went to the uh, Green Revolution, which I'll talk about in a minute, and we got a lot of cheap food, and you can see what happened. The result of this is that we've destroyed our soil on a global basis. How many of you have heard of the Green Revolution? Okay, not many. Well, you were here last time, so were you here last time for the first one? No, you weren't. Someone who looks a lot like you was here for the last one, I'm sorry. But anyway, I talked about this last, last session. Um, the Green Revolution, don't be embarrassed, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's history now. There were some guys in the late 50s and early 60s who, who had a, a big sense of urgency, and they said, look, we've got 3 billion people, 3.5 billion people on the earth, and we can't possibly feed them. We're going toward a brick wall at 100 miles an hour, and it's terrible. And we've got to do something. And so man, in all of his wisdom, and that's almost none, they got together and they said, okay, we're, we're, we're going to have, we're going to use fertilizer all over the world. We're going to really distribute fertilizer. We're going to really distribute pesticides. There's this really good thing called DDT. It's great. And we're going to breed these new kinds of plants that get a lot more food out of, you know, we, we can't create ground, so we've got to increase yield. Well, they got the UN involved, always a bad idea. They got uh, universities involved, and it worked. It worked. They created breeds of plants that, that yielded three times as much off of one piece of ground. 
and used three times as much water and used far more uh, um, uh, fertilizer. And they had it so that people all over the world were using tremendous amounts of fertilizer. In the developing world, it's a problem with medicine also. One pill is good, two pills are great, three pills is fantastic. Um, and that same approach was taken all too often with fertilizer. How does this connect with the Bible? Hold on a minute, we'll get there. So we replaced, I'm a horse owner, and this isn't ugly to me, but you know, maybe you live in the city and that's, that's a healthy horse, by the way. That's, that's, that horse is in good shape. But anyway, instead of putting uh, organic matter into the soil and feeding the microorganisms and keeping everything going as God created, we put chemicals in the soil. And not only that, uh, but we irrigated so they could be intensive. And we used pesticides. And we used tremendous amounts of uh, fertilizer, and we got this. Tremendous production, but we eventually got this, or are getting this. What happens when you put fertilizer down is that some of it the plant takes up, some of it gets washed off, some of it stays in the ground in the form of salts. And those salts build up, and at some point early on in the process, it kills off the microorganisms. It kills off the fungus. It kills off everything in there that makes it soil, and it becomes dirt. At that point, you have to put on a lot more fertilizer because what God created isn't there anymore. And the soil, the salts keep building up and keep building up. Anything that stays alive that was there before is killed off by the pesticides. Together, they, they turn soil into dirt. And we've done this all over the world. Eventually, the salts build up so much that the plants have a hard time growing. And you can, you can remedy that by putting on more fertilizer for one or two more years. And then you're done. That's it. No more. And you get this. Each year, 20 million acres of soil comes out of production around the world. We've destroyed what God made. Not only that, but we've created superbugs and superweeds, same way we create superbugs, uh, super germs, by abusing antibiotics. In the 1960s, we lost 23% of crops to, super bu to uh, pesticides and uh, to pests and weeds. And today, we're losing 26%. And that's with, when using uh, pesticides and herbicides, we use 50 times as much, and each unit is 100 times as strong. So 5,000 times what we were using in, in the 1960s, and we're losing that battle. How does that relate? Well, it's not the only thing suppressing yields. There's actually this convergence of things that's suppressing yields. These are uh, storms and floods and uh, climatological events, extreme temperatures, droughts, forest fires. We've seen these triple. In 1980, we had about 300 events. Uh, 2012, we had the, the, the trend line is 900 events. We've seen disasters triple in the last 30 years, and that's suppressing yields. That's not the, I'm gonna return to this chart in a future presentation and talk about what Ellen White had to say about significant increases in disasters immediately preceding the Sunday Law. People, Adventists have talked about the Sunday Law for generations and generations. This generation can chart and graph its coming and can see it on the horizon. We're the first ones. This is serious. So we're running two races. We're losing both. 
50 plus years, 60 years actually, of industrial revolution, of industrial agriculture. That's all, 60 years, and we've destroyed a global resource. If we don't, put, if we don't use oil in the production of food, we have a 95% reduction in the amount of food we're able to produce with 7 billion people. 7 billion people who will fight for their food. We're racing against the depletion of soil all around the world, so we're losing more and more soil. I mean, despite the fact that it's just, well, we're losing dirt, really. We're losing dirt, uh, and um, at the same time, our, our production yields, which have climbed, are flattening, and our population is continuing to grow. We've got this really big problem. So what, right? You had a good breakfast. Well, so what is that on a global basis, we're having sequential food price crises. Now, this is a food price chart going back to 1990. Uh, you, can, you can look on the web and go, get it going back to 1960, but it doesn't change a whole lot. The low point in food prices was when, really, industrial agriculture hit its peak and oil was very low uh, in, in historic terms, 2002. $19 a barrel, oh, the good old days. Um, cheap food, that's pretty much, we hit our peak there. It's all downhill from there. We see one, food price spike. Arguably, we see two. We definitely see this one here. So scientists say there's three price spikes. I think there's really two, whatever. Um, and you didn't notice. You didn't notice the price of food doubling uh, between 2006 and 2009 because you don't earn $2 a day. But there's 3.5 billion people on this earth, many of whom have not heard of Christ, who cannot, who cannot possibly afford or who cannot possibly maintain their very modest lives with this kind of pressure, price pressure. Um, 3.5 billion people, 1 billion who are making a dollar a day or less. When you buy a box of cornflakes, you buy, if you're foolish enough to do it, a handful of corn and a handful of sugar. Really, that's what's in there. And you're paying $4 for that box of cornflakes. When this price spike happened, the amount, of the, the, the cost of the food, the actual food, not the packaging, not everything else, because you're paying for insurance and transportation and luxury housing for Tony the Tiger and all this stuff, you know. But the actual cost of food, your cornflakes went from $4 to $4.20. But if you are earning $1 or $2 a day and you actually buy a handful of corn and you buy a handful of sugar, you can only afford one handful now. And you had, you were eating the minimum amount to begin with. All over the world, Billions of people have had to make massive adjustments these last five years. But that's not all that happened. It wasn't just a matter of, of people adjusting to extremely difficult situations because those who were really poor, when food prices got high, that was the last straw for them. You had rebellions. You had attempts to overthrow government. You had riots. Uh, you had wars between countries. And there is a direct correlation between the availability and price of food and people's willingness to fight and overthrow governments and make change and that sort of thing. The entire so-called Arab Spring 
happened because people were very unhappy with their governments, but was triggered by the food price spike. The story's actually bigger than that. Back in 2006, there was a drought that started in the Middle East, a historic drought all throughout the Fertile Crescent, and it continued 2006, 2007, and people, it was a really bad year, but farmers, and we're talking millions of small farmers that are just, just barely making it, you know, they got their herds grazing on the, free ranging on the hills, they got their crops, and by the way, a lot of them were, were growing barley, and they used, they exported barley to make beer, they exported it to Europe, and when the drought hit, the price of beer went up in Europe, isn't that too bad? But anyway, so they're, they're growing their modest crops, and they have to make a decision here. Uh, you know, do we buy hay for the animals? Well, they, they don't buy hay. Farmers can't buy hay. They, the animals graze on the hillsides. Do we get them through the winter? Do we try and buy some of this really expensive hay? And, and, and we've got to save money because we've got to buy seed here. So the drought came, the dr and, and another you know, year passed. They bought some seed. They're all out of money. Tough times for farmers. They plant the seed. The drought continues. They're killing off their animals because the animals are skin and bones anyway. Do we sell grandma's earrings, that one, one belonging that we have? And do we buy food or do we buy seed? No matter what, we're in trouble. If we buy seed, we can't eat. If we buy food, we can't plant. What are we going to do? And the drought continues, and people are begging the government, and they're giving little crusts of bread. And the drought continues, and people become extraordinarily desperate. In Syria, people... Uh, finally got to the point, a few young people, your age, where they began to write protest slogans on the wall, and the government there, with its usual light touch, lined them up against that same wall and shot them. And that's thus started the war in Syria. Now, these, this, this, this chart is put together by an organization called NEXI, New, uh, New England Complex Studies Institute, which is a cooperation between Harvard and MIT. Really smart guys. And the numbers that they have here are the numbers of deaths. And you know that this is an old chart because the numbers of deaths in Syria are 900. That number's over 100,000 now. There are millions and millions of refugees. There's, there's rampant disease and starvation in Syria. Uh, neighboring governments are being destabilized. It's turned into a regional war with the U.S. and Israel and sometimes Turkey on one side and Iraq, Iran, and Syria on the other. All of this is going on while we watch. It's because it starts with sin. Sin affects the world increasingly. We're seeing that top destabilize. Society destabilizes. And what we see here on this graph is coming more and more. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. You will see wars. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, famine, pestilence. We can see it now. We can see it as it's happening. We can chart it and graph it, and we, can, we know where it's coming. It's coming to Central Africa next. It's actually more or less here in Central Africa right now. This is by that same group, and this is the food price trend line that they project, that that trend will continue. It's not that it's just happening or not going to happen in one place. I argue with them this clumsy line that I, that I put in, this is my food price trend line. Um, and I hope we're both wrong. I hope it's a flatter line than that. But right now, we can see 
the fulfillment of prophecy, and we can see it coming, and we're asleep. Really, we're asleep. I'll be talking about that in session four. The only consolation, and it's not much consolation at all, is that Christ himself said we would be asleep. He also said we needed to wake up. So, this is uh, where conflict will happen next. That's my headline. <laughs> this, is a, this is a map by Maplecroft, who is a uh, global security firm out of the uh, out of UK. And I don't think they would approve of that headline juxtaposed on their map. So I need to make you understand that's my headline. But here is Food Security Risk Index 2013. I can hardly wait till their map, new map comes out this month. Here's where we've got the greatest risk right now. And here's where, at the same time, interestingly, you get radical Islam destabilizing governments. And if you've been paying attention to Africa, um, these countries and the increasing instability that we see have been in the news all year. There is a link between the price and availability of food and social stability. And we're seeing it right now. And there is a link between the physical state of the earth and the fulfillment of prophecy. Not the prophecy in Revelation. And in seminar four, I'll go more deeply into this. But what Christ said would immediately precede his coming. When he sat down with the disciples and opened to them what would happen in the end times. So, here's what we get when we look carefully at our global food production system. We get food price spikes, which we will see more and more and more of as this confluence of events around the world make life impossible for billions of poor people. And my question is, are we doing everything we can to evangelize them? We can't save them. The poor will suffer and die. Are we using our resources, including our time, not just our money, our time, our reputation, to witness wherever Christ calls us to witness? Some of you may be asked to, to witness internationally. Some of you may be asked to witness to your next-door neighbor. But however we're asked to engage in this global battle, are we doing it? Um, conflict and poverty drive disease and pestilence. So do wars. It's a, it's a downward spiral. And so we are seeing right now, and we will see more and more and more famine, conflicts, increasing disease, and destabilization of society. Um, it is because of man's sin that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together. It starts with sin. Everything on the world is framed by the great controversy, and it's going on right now. So, since we're seeing the culmination of this great controversy, and since we're able to chart and graph this, what's our responsibility? Really? What is our responsibility? Satan has created this mirage that man and his society and the worldly goals and everything else and our status in society and our reputation, all that, that that's real. But when you take a close look at what's going on and when you draw close to Christ, it's like beginning to see, it's like walking onto the stage of a play and what looked real from the back of the theater 
is cheap fakery. That's the situation we're in, and yet most Christians and most Adventists are staring at this mirage put up by Satan and are distracted by it. So I'll be taking this, this verse uh, apart in my fourth and fifth sessions. I won't spend all the time on the verse, but sequentially I'll be taking it apart. Oh, no, in my fourth and sixth sessions. If you, you know, don't come back, and, and if I were you, I'd be going to all the different sessions. I wouldn't be going to two of any one. But if this has piqued your interest, I've just touched on one small part. I haven't talked about man's complex society. I haven't talked about the other things that are converging upon us. I haven't talked about how technology, which was our friend, has become our enemy through the maturation of our complex society. I haven't talked about the cluster of events that are fulfilling prophecy and will make it so that the end time events really are rapid ones. And I encourage you to listen to the rest of these on uh, um, Audioverse. Thank you. But at the same time, there's a promise. If you want to help people, introduce them to Christ, because only through Christ is our bread and water sure. If, you, if, you, if your heart bleeds for those who don't have enough to eat, if your heart bleeds for those that are suffering, and many, many, many will suffer and die, we know that. I'm not saying you'll guarantee someone lives a good life by introducing them to Christ. But it's the only way that they will escape suffering and get to heaven. And the workers of Christ, those who are working for Christ in this time, their bread and water will be sure. Increasingly, that's a very, very significant promise in this day. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.